Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Sociology. I'm your host, Richard Osijo of the City University of New York. And today we're going to be joined by Gordon Douglas, uh, Assistant Professor of Urban Planning and the Director of the Institute for Metropolitan Studies at San Jose State University. And he's going to talk about his recently published book, The Help Yourself City, Legitimacy and Inequality in DIY Urbanism. Gordon, thanks for coming on to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Cool. So this book I really enjoyed in the sense that it's the kind of work that once you read it, you start seeing it everywhere uh, and you start really thinking about your uh, surrounding environments uh, in a whole different way. But before we start, why don't you tell us a little about yourself and your background and how you came to academia? Uh, Sure. Yeah. So I... uh... Let's see, I was born in the UK, but I grew up in Northern California, in Davis, home to a University of California campus. Um, like a lot of kids uh, growing up in that town, um, my I had a parent who worked at the university, um, and really two academic parents, um, and I uh, wound up going to USC for college, uh, and uh after kind of a roundabout path, uh, I found myself doing a PhD in sociology uh, at the University of Chicago. Um, that in and of itself was a little bit of a of a strange kind of bit of happenstance for me. I, I never took a sociology class as an undergrad. Um, in fact, I was an international relations major and a, a journalism minor. I did photojournalism um, at USC. And... Uh, Really, it was after I even had done a master's in communication uh, that was one of these kind of joint things where I was one year at LSE in London and one year back at USC Annenberg. Uh, And it was there that I had started taking classes from sociologists and other urbanists, um, kind of weirdly as part of that global media program that was really sort of a study of globalization and that kind of stuff. And so I I met folks who began to sort of shape my thinking more uh, on the one hand sociologically and on the other kind of more urban rather than uh, international, I suppose, um, to the extent that, that, that that's an important difference. Um, and so I wound up applying to grad schools and wound up going to Chicago um, where I uh, kind of wasn't sure. I, I started out uh, with still something of a globalization interest. I, I, uh, my my advisor there was Saskia Sassen um, at Chicago when I got there. Um, but before too long, I started getting really interested in the urban side of that, including the urban side of, of her work. Um, and around the same time, uh, she uh, moved universities to Columbia. 
there was a lot of kind of, as you can imagine, there always is with these things, you know, student kind of uncertainty. Some students moved to Columbia with her and others rushed to finish and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I was pretty early in, in my program and uh, just stayed and switched advisors and began working with Mario Small and began focusing kind of increasingly on uh, sort of moving from the global to the very local neighborhood and, uh, you know, as, as the book demonstrates, very, uh, very small scale sort of levels of urbanism, even though, of course, you know, the, the research for the, for the book is also, uh, multinational. Um, so that's kind of the, the long and the short of it. I, I became a urban sociologist by, uh, uh, sort of almost chance, I guess, uh, due to the kind of awesome folks I got to meet who turned me on to certain topics. Um, and, you know, I would just say, you know, you mentioned kind of at the outset the how once you sort of read about this stuff, you start seeing it everywhere. And that's that's how I started researching it, too. You know, I had done a I had done a master's in that global media program where I ended up looking at graffiti and street art and the presence of graffiti and street art in multiple cities. And I have just kind of always been obsessed with that kind of stuff. And it was after that that I, I decided to go back into sociology because I was still kind of, I was working in international development, like post-conflict nonprofit stuff in, uh, uh, based in Los Angeles and New York, raising money for projects in like Afghanistan and Iraq. But I was like still kind of spending my spare time obsessing over street art and these, this idea of kind of reclaiming public space and these questions that I had thought about in my master's program, which had a sort of strong cultural studies element. And uh, that it was that kind of like obsessing over this stuff that led me to, to keep thinking about the sort of informal modification or, or alteration of urban space uh, that, that wound up being this kind of urban sociology book that then in turn has wound up being, I hope, uh, as much a sort of broad urban studies book as a sociology book, um, especially now that I'm sitting here in an urban planning department. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you uh, live in cities, if you just kind of hinted at, then you're bound to come across these things that really shouldn't be there, meaning they weren't planned to be there. They weren't designed into the space or the space was never intended for such purposes. So you mentioned graffiti, you mentioned street art. We can think of uh, skateboarding. We can think of musical and theatrical performances on streets and subways. But here you're identifying this particular type of intervention in cities that is more civic minded and aims for improving uh, the cityscape and improving social life within uh, a neighborhood, helpful signage, benches, free book exchange, public art, uh, agriculture. These are just some examples. So how did you make that shift from observing the, the graffiti and some of the more familiar uh, types of interventions that we see in cities to looking at these more practical civic minded projects uh, that we see in a lot of places? Yeah, so I started, uh, you know, like I guess many folks do in a PhD program, not not really knowing what my study, my my dissertation work was going to be on or where exactly I would go. I knew that I was interested still in these kind of phenomena around, uh, well, specifically street art has been an interest for a long time, and in fact, I'm still a uh, kind of. Uh, 
uh, obsessive uh, viewer and photographer of, of street graffiti and street art everywhere I, I go. Um, I'm actually going down to LA this weekend. I'm going to try to catch the uh, Beyond the Streets exhibit that's up in downtown LA right now. But I, I, I was kind of obsessed about that stuff and, and thinking a lot about this more theoretical question behind it that often comes up if you read these sort of cultural studies, critical critical theory stuff around things to uh, sort of act in public space and especially to act in informal ways, right? Or to sort of challenge the expected uses of public space. And there are folks who have made that argument about skateboarding, for instance, you mentioned. Um, certainly also graffiti and street art. Um, and of course, more obviously political, uh, like I think of uh, that was especially prominent in the UK um, uh, sort of in the in the late 20th century and early 21st century, which involved lots of sort of protestables, right? And people occupying public space, occupying the streets, trying to shut them down from traffic and uh, uh, create sort of alternative uses of these spaces all the way down to literally like jackhammering into the pavement to plant a, a tree, something like that. Um, now, this was actually even before Occupy, but that became then, of course, the next big example of people completely rethinking the use of public space for uh, for different means, right? For, for kind of almost envisioning alternative uh, social organization, right? Um, however temporary it wound up being. Um, and so I was kind of interested in these these sort of different extremes. One, the sort of act of art in public space in and of itself as maybe having some value or some sort of theoretical uh, sub. And then the more obviously political stuff. And I was talking to a lot of folks at that time, and I was reading uh, the folks that, that you might expect around these topics, like Henri Lefebvre, uh, Michel Desoteau. Um, there, there's a, a wonderful um, cultural studies theorist named John Fisk. Um, uh, whose work was, was pretty inspirational to me. Again, mainly coming out of that communications background, the, the cultural studies stuff. And at Chicago, I started to get a sort of a different response around that, which was, um, yeah, but is this really consequential? You know, uh, it's like, what's the, even, and, and some of this from the more pragmatic folks, but even from the, um, from the Marxists, you know, like, okay, great. Sure. Some uh, some guys are out there goofing around in public space. What are they really reclaiming, right? Like, is, is there any praxis kind of to this, right? And that really started to, to sort of sink in. And I started thinking, about, like, what is this stuff all about? Um, and whether or not even the most political stuff was a really very radical act, and certainly whether a lot of it was anything more than just acting out. Or, or something like that. And so one of the things that stood out to me as a novel sort of instantiation of this sort of stuff is the what I came to call sort of DIY urbanism or DIY urban design. Um, and uh, as you said, that's this much more sort of functional, civic-minded stuff that people are doing, still without permission, still in many cases quite illegally, um, and as I argue in the book, not necessarily always positively in effect, but in intention, these folks are, are trying to make um, a sort of simple but positive contribution to the built environment around them. And you could argue that street artists are too, but there's a different sort of level of uh, kind of in functional intentionality here uh, in and almost sort of um, – 
almost trying to do the work that the city ought to be doing uh, is the way that a lot of people would frame it to me when I started talking to them. So this sort of stuff, like building a bench and putting it out there, a bench that is not a artistic statement, right? Or throwing some seeds into a vacant lot um, or, or putting up a street sign that just says, you know, no parking on the sidewalk or something like that um, stood out as kind of different from, from all those other extremes. And so I started to sort of focus on that as an interesting thing uh, that sociology hadn't really talked about. And I guess I should add around the same time that I was kind of curious about these things and how to sort of categorize them and how to understand them as illegal but functional uh, interventions, there also you have in sort of the popular urbanist realm online, especially and elsewhere in, in, in plan, planning, design, architecture, publications, a lot of chatter about this kind of um, bottom up urbanism and Planning as a field has talked about participation since, you know, its inception to some extent, especially it did in the 60s and the 70s. And it has been at the forefront of what planning scholarship and practices is supposed to be all about for a long time. But this um, there was a real excitement around this kind of citizen participation and full on uh enacting of planning ideals at a local level. So it was there was this kind of idea. And in fact, you see the term DIY urbanism starts to pop up. It's not, not my term uh, around that same time in architecture and design. But it seemed like not in sociology. And I felt like we were kind of uniquely well positioned to, to look at whether or not this is uh, what this kind of means, who's doing it, where they're coming from whether it's a social good or not, um, because uh, when you hear about somebody going out and doing something cool, like building a bench for a bus stop that doesn't have one, uh, there's a sort of, uh, I think one is one is inclined to view that as a, an obvious positive. <laughs> and so I wanted to kind of um, dig into what that was about and, and who was doing that. And I'm a, a, a very kind of qualitative social scientist, um, thanks to my training and own, you know, personal preferences and disposition. And so I, I started interviewing people who do that. Yeah. Now these, this idea, I guess, of, of informal urbanism is hardly new, but the activities in the book are these more DIY, very, uh, very deliberately civic minded, uh, only about you trace since the early two thousands or so with some antecedents going back to the sixties. So what explains why, they have emerged now. What is it about today's city, this urban context, uh, that has led to people to want to engage in these specific forms of of DIY urban design? You know, I think. Well, first of all, I would just reemphasize, as you just did, that there are antecedents to this stuff, and people have been making and remaking their surroundings as long as there have been cities, and and even before, right? Um, that's kind of one of the things we do uh, as as human beings. But I I do think there's something distinct about this, and and I I I think that there was a lot of kind of beginning of shift in this in this direction in the sort of second half of the 20th century, where which you know lines up pretty well also with the origins of street art, for instance, and the origins of uh, hip hop and punk rock and that kind of stuff as kind of DIY worlds in music. Um, but, and, and that's when you have folks like Gordon Matta Clark, um, in addition to street art, but like this kind of 
placemaking architecture and stuff that kind of begins to sort of interact with public space, uh, the situationists in the 60s, um, who were kind of working to challenge people's expectations of what art looked like and what professional practice looked like. Um, But something happens more recently than that. And I, you know, I, I think that it's, it's a combination of, of a few things. Um, you can't discount how much the internet and information technology have just made stuff more visible, right? So anything that happens, even if it's relatively small scale, now it can get recognized, written up, become a big phenomenon on, you know, curbed or uh, formerly Gothamist or any of these uh, kind of big uh Next City is another huge one right now, right? Atlantic Cities. These websites that kind of have fostered over the last 10 years a sort of urban, a sort of popular but nonetheless relatively highbrow sort of urbanism in in our society, like outside of just academia and the professions. A lot of people are talking about cities and a lot of people are talking about their their sort of place in cities. And... Um, so much so that many of my friends who are not urban sociologists or architects or designers, um, you know, have read Jane Jacobs and this kind of stuff, right? It's kind of become partly because so many young, affluent, educated uh, people have been have moved, you know, quote unquote, back uh, to our urban areas and have been part of this kind of massive gentrification process and all that other stuff that, that's happening. Um, and I think that that kind of popular urbanism has led to a greater awareness of this stuff. So again, that's me sort of noting probably some of this, more of this has been happening for a really long time. Um, and then I also argue in the book that a big kind of context for understanding this stuff is the the sort of late modern, uh, you know, quote unquote, neoliberal city and um, the urban planning that goes along with that, which which, uh, you know, to cut, to, to put simply has involved a lot of kind of privatization of responsibility, including very traditionally civic responsibilities like service provision, um, and placemaking. And a lot of that has been divested to sort of like private interests. Uh, developers, for instance, have a ton of sway. Um, government itself has kind of created policies to allow this kind of stuff to happen, to, to give power to to developers to make those sort of decisions. But I think that it's important to remember that it's in that context that we have now everyday people uh, you know, also feeling kind of more confident making these sorts of improvements or what they see as improvements in their neighborhoods. And uh, so I think that there's a, there's a bit of a sort of spirit of, of kind of we might as well do it. We should all be helping out, uh, or we might as well help ourselves, uh, hence the title of the book, um, because it's kind of a free-for-all, right? Which is kind of the sort of second meaning of, of the title of the book. And then then there's the third, I think, um, easy to overemphasize, but nonetheless important uh, context of the sort of late, uh, the, the very recent um, housing crisis and recession and sort of cities, uh, several cities uh, declaring bankruptcy and a lot of cities just not having the money in the in the thick of the sort of uh, 2008 
to 2011-ish kind of housing crisis and recession, uh, you have a lot of people or a lot of cities that can't afford to sort of maintain some of these basic services. And so then you also have that context of people feeling like, you know, maybe the city's never going to do it, so we might as well do it. Like whether it's painting a bike lane or just, you know, repairing a broken swing in a playground or something like that. Yeah, and a really interesting point you make in the book is that they are in many ways engaging in the policies of the neoliberal city that they are reacting to. And in many cases, as we'll, we'll get to in a minute, that they're also very critical of, they're very self-conscious of what's going on and of uh, what they're trying to accomplish. But often it serves this grander idea that the city has gone more towards this anti-democratic, more uh, market-based, individual-based uh, mode. Right. Yeah. I, I, I argue in the book that a lot of the, uh, the people involved in this stuff are don't see themselves as activists or as um, or as politically motivated. Now there's, there's a problem with kind of taking them at their word on that. Obviously something like painting a bike lane illegally at three in the morning is a sort of political act. Right. But they, they would argue that like aside from their kind of local bike politics in that case, um, they're they're not about sort of like challenging the status quo. They're more about just kind of like getting something functional done. Um, but on the other hand, that uh, without uh, without too much imagination, you can imagine all sorts of things that one person might might think is is an improvement from their perspective and and isn't necessarily viewed as an improvement by the rest of us. And, and that's why just how much this this very sort of bottom-up and ostensibly populist sort of placemaking in in many ways, you know, kind of reenacts this sort of uh, uh, neoliberal process of, uh, of the individualization of this sort of responsibility. Um, and indeed, this sort of lack of, of uh, democratic oversight that, that uh, official government planning for all of its flaws and, and, and inadequacies uh, does at least supposedly have at its kind of base, right? There's this idea that a planning department, whether or not you agree with every one of their decisions, is somehow kind of democratically uh, to be held uh, accountable, right? Um, but if you and I decide we'd really like, uh, you know, a bike lane running down our neighborhood street and we go out and paint it at four in the morning, um, you know, there's no, even if we, even if all of us and our buddies think it's great, uh, and everybody likes bike lanes, quote unquote, <laughs> it may not be, uh, totally welcomed by everybody. And it certainly hasn't been, uh, you know, thought about by, uh, from the perspective of what it's kind of myriad, uh, secondary implications might be. So you mentioned that there is this baseline of cultural literacy around urbanism in the city that exists today. And, you know, so many folks have it, they at least know who Jane Jacobs was or something like that. Right. right. Um, but there's a, there's obviously a difference between knowing that and then doing something about something that you see. So, so who are these folks? Who right. are these DIYers and, and what motivates them to, to do what they do to get up and design a bench and put it out there in the middle of the night? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, I did, I talked to all sorts of people, but, uh, and again, needless to say, people make minor informal alterations to their surroundings all the time. People of 
children do this, right? But I, one of the things that kind of initially surprised me, and then by the end really just fit with kind of a lot of what I was else I was learning, was just how well informed uh, and in some cases, even professionally trained, a lot of the people making these interventions turn out to be once you start talking to them. Um, and in particular, I found uh, that not only are they mainly sort of upper middle class, educated to some extent, um, mainly white, um, and in a surprisingly large number of cases, professional individuals, also mainly uh, older than you might think in terms of our stereotypes about sort of a teenage graffiti vandal or something like that, right? These are, these are mainly folks in their 30s and 40s. And, and, and they're folks who have the resources to <laughs> go out and do this kind of stuff. Um, not just the sort of confidence, and, and you know, I, we can, we can talk about that in a second, but also the sort of like professional knowledge and training uh, that sort of turned up in these in these projects uh, time after time. So you have um, you have people painting bike lanes who are you know going to go look at the city bike plan and learn about where bike lanes go and how wide bike lanes are supposed to be, and uh, they're going to go to Home Depot and get a lane striper. Uh, that you can get at Home Depot. And they're going to like talk to the guys at Home Depot about what the best road paint is and this kind of stuff, right? They might even pose as members of the city department of transportation to try to get this kind of information. And they're concerned not so much with like um, necessarily a, a level of aesthetic uh, achievement, although some of them certainly were interested in that, but in a sort of professional uh, quality. And I heard from, from these do-it-yourselfers all the time about how uh, they were definitely concerned about whether something they were building could be dangerous or something like that. Um, that doesn't mean that they saw eye-to-eye with a member of the City Department of Transportation about what might be dangerous, but they they were um, you know, looking into it at least. Um, and then the sort of second part of that is that a pretty sizable number of them actually work in design of some sort, not necessarily urban design or architecture, but certainly several of them do. Um, other sorts of design, graphic design, industrial design. Um, I spoke to a lot, uh, probably, uh, I can't remember the figures in fr- uh, that I have in the book, but but a dozen or so of them work in, in planning, you know? Uh, or have, or have gone to grad school for planning and this kind of stuff. Um, so it's really uh, close to their hearts, and they're um, they're kind of skilled at this. And then you have a whole, then you have this other chunk of folks who are don't come from that professional background, but are nonetheless like really looking into the best ways of doing it, um, and in the process of of trying to make something better, are you know are learning about the best materials to use, reading up on on the guidelines for this kind of stuff. So that you have this pretty high level of knowledge and and background knowledge and skill being brought to not all but but to many of these interventions that um I argue kind of on the one hand should give us some sort of confidence in the projects again for being far more than just vandalism or disorder, right? These are people who are really trying to make a improvement. Um, but 
uh, it also introduces a considerable sort of chance of overconfidence and hubris uh, in among these folks, right? And so when you have a project that maybe not everybody agrees with, um, you might you might wind up with more people participating in this sort of stuff um, who don't necessarily represent or look like uh, the people in the community that they are impacting. Um, and, and that's especially important when you, when you realize that, you know, although my concern mainly in the book is kind of ostensibly positive and functional improvements, I did start to meet people and hear about stories that are, you know, pretty clearly kind of, uh, selfish and, and, and sort of antisocial, um, whether it's like painting, a uh, painting a red curb gray to create yourself a parking space. Up a fire hydrant with a trash can, um, or uh, a book I interviewed uh, who stopped because he was tired of the garbage piling up at the bus stop. And of course, uh, out here in California, we often talk about uh, these kind of like wealthy beachfront homeowners trying to like restrict access to the beach, which is a, a public right of way. So you have all of this, and it often takes these very similar forms to to the more positive DIY stuff, like creating signs putting up gates, all this kind of stuff. Um, so you have a great kind of potential for misuse of this. Um, and, and again, for this kind of not everybody's priorities being being reflected in this, uh, in this sort of placemaking, which doesn't necessarily make it worse than mainstream planning, but certainly uh, doesn't uh, necessarily make it any better. Yeah, the, the excessive confidence and hubris that you point out really brings out the dark side, I guess, of these practices, which is the, the inequality that's in your subtitle in the sense that in terms of there's the social backgrounds of these DIYers racially and in terms of class, they have these social privileges that grant them, uh, certain access and, and, and really kind of a certain, uh, almost like impunity when they're engaging these practices in public space. But obviously these are not evenly distributed and you document a few different groups, uh, non-white groups, uh, lower income groups uh, who face far different circumstances when they're engaging in some of these projects. Can you talk a bit about how some of this uh, inequality plays out among these folks? Sure. Yeah, I mean, so this becomes kind of the big uh, sort of critique of this DIY urbanism and with a lot of uh, kind of by extension in the book, I also spend a chapter kind of evolving this critique up to the up to the scale of kind of mainstream planning, creative placemaking, uh, a lot of the kind of trendy uh, urban placemaking practices that I think reflect a lot of the same um, priorities and some of the same concerns. But yeah, I mean, this this is this is the kind of thing that. Uh, you know, for planning and architecture and design is just so important and so rarely effectively considered or or addressed, which is that not everybody has the same privilege to act in public space and not everybody has the same access to a voice in design or planning. And, um, you know, I think for sociologists, once we when we hear that a lot of the people participating in this stuff are, are white and middle class, <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we start to just kind of realize what, uh, what that means, uh, for, for folks who are non-white and of lower income. I have less, uh, status or less, uh, political capital, social capital, cultural capital, et cetera, right? There, um, 
you know, people people of color uh, have a lot more about um, getting getting shot uh, by the police than uh, than you know a white person does who's out there in the middle of the night uh, painting a bike lane or hanging a sign off of a of a light pole or something like that. So not only does that introduce a very real uh, sort of discouraging factor uh, <laughs> for for people of color, um, it, it it potentially is tied into a whole culture of sort of not breaking the law or being afraid of police or being less willing to call attention to oneself or or risk something for something that's fairly trivial, right? Like putting up a little sign that says, uh, don't park on my sidewalk or whatever, or, or, or throwing even seeds into a vacant lot. And that doesn't mean that, that uh, disadvantaged or underprivileged people don't have many things to improve in their neighborhoods, um, nor does it mean that they don't do it, right? There's, there's plenty of sort of small-scale improvements happening in low-income neighborhoods all the time. Uh, and I talk about some really great examples of this in the book. But it, what it means is that there's a real danger in sort of celebrating this DIY urbanism as a sort of uh, democratic, grassroots, uh, popular sort of phenomenon of people, of everybody participating in their neighborhood placemaking, when in reality, we know it's a hell of a lot easier for, um, you know, the, the uh, sort of stereotypical gentrifier, creative class, uh, young, affluent, privileged um, people, urbanites, um, are, are really likely to have a sort of greater say in, uh, in this sort of urbanism, much as they do in other sorts of urbanism, um, meaning, that, meaning that certain sorts of projects that are getting all the press and are getting a lot of, of sort of celebration and might even be embraced by cities eventually and become more formalized and that kind of stuff might be wonderful projects. Um, but they may not be, uh, quite the sort of democratic, uh, sort of magical demonstration of local, of local priorities, uh, that they're, that they're kind of sold as or celebrated as, um, and then, of course, again, they end up sort of reflecting particular priorities, right? The priorities of of this group um, of of kind of new urbanists, many of whom are are improving neighborhoods that they did not grow up in, right? Um, and uh, and again, you get to this kind of like you know improvement for some, but not necessarily improvement for others, uh, and you just get a sort of sense. Uh, I mean, I, I, one of the stories I, I talk about in the book is, is a woman in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, who uh, wanted to sort of improve things in her adopted neighborhood, and that included uh, this big sort of guerrilla gardening effort, which is this sort of unauthorized gardening in, in vacant lots or tree wells. And she organized a whole bunch of people online to go out and throw seeds in, into vacant uh, vacant lots. And, you know, it was an entirely sort of generous uh, effort. In, in her mind. And yet, um, n not that anybody really minded the flowers, but uh, it was viewed very skeptically by a lot of the folks in that community as kind of who is this person and what, what right does she have to sort of improve things here or to take it upon herself to decide that this is what we need. Um, and, and so you, you have this kind of great danger for this stuff that we're 
celebrating as a really nice kind of alternative to or complement to mainstream urban planning. Um, actually, you know, having all of these kind of kind of deep uh, problems with inequality and, and uh, kind of privileged actors um, kind of, you know, having, having more of a say. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will be familiar with these projects and these designs and the, the, the spirit of them, at least uh, through more formal projects, because there's been some interesting co-optation here. As you document, we have city governments and planning departments that have begun developing public spaces with projects that are that are very similar or even they borrow from what a lot of these uh, grassroots DIY groups have done. So DIY folks do what they do because the city won't, but should. And now they, now that they are, the city is doing it to some extent, which is, <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is rather interesting. But of course, then with these projects, when as they become formalized, we still must consider a lot of the issues that you've talked about, such as whether they are truly inclusive, whether they are equally beneficial, um, or whether they're going to retain some of their more exclusioning or exclusionary tendencies. Right. Yeah, I... I, I... I think that's exactly right. And in fact, that's kind of where a lot of my work is now is looking at, um, well, especially for instance, this kind of much more mainstream trend known as creative placemaking, which is not, um, it's too strong to say that it is derivative of DIY urbanism, but I think that they share a lot of aesthetics in common. Um, creative placemaking at its core is really just kind of the use, the use of, uh, of the arts to kind of enliven or improve uh, public spaces, right? But and that can take many, many forms. And you could certainly argue that a public mural or some bit of graffiti or something like that is a sort of creative placemaking. But it especially um, has been embraced by cities in the last sort of 10 years as this way to kind of foster economic development and, and sort of neighborhood vibrancy and walkability and what have you through these sort of small scale, flashy, creative, designy uh, interventions. And it, it tends to sort of perpetuate a very particular aesthetic, despite this kind of creative moniker and the fact that creative people, quote unquote, are often involved in creating it. Um, and indeed, cities and communities, uh, members of, of, of local communities are often invited to participate in some way or another in the uh, painting of an intersection or um, the conversion of, of some sort of public space into a more lively, funky space that's full of chairs and games and other kind of places to hang out and what have you. They, they, they can create kind of wonderful spaces um, that the community might be involved in, but they have tended to sort of um, perpetuate a sort of a, a certain aesthetic around of this kind of trendy, trendy urbanism. Um, and so as this stuff becomes more trendy and, you know, I, I would just hasten to add that, that it is, it is not just, uh, you know, depending on where kind of listeners are living, they may or may not have encountered some of this, but we've probably all at this point, if we live in an even remotely urban area encountered, um, these parklets, right. Which have become this kind of new staple of, of, urban placemaking, which is basically taking a parking spot or two and giving it over to a uh, sidewalk extension that, that might take different forms, but it usually looks like a sort of sidewalk cafe sticking out into the street a little bit. Um, and this is now in 
hundreds of cities <laughs> of all sizes uh, as a kind of creative way to take a parking space and turn it into a public space. And, you know, I would I would want to emphasize that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, uh, other than from the potential pr- perspective of, of somebody trying to park, uh, who we don't <laughs> who I don't have all that much sympathy for. I think, you know, in most cases, these things are fine, but they also tend to just be about sort of economic development. They tend to just be about prioritizing a sort of trendy neighborhood feel that has very quickly gone. Um clever adaptive reuse that the cities like San Francisco started doing uh you know 10 more than 10 years ago into kind of a almost a stamp of a changing neighborhood and and you know the, those who are familiar with the, the gentrification scholarship including your own know know about these kinds of things that begin to characterize a rapidly changing neighborhood right like the the trendy coffee shop or the cocktail bar etc right and um these kinds of spaces have started to become that sort of symbol. Uh, and so right up there, even with bike lanes, right, which are, it's really, it, it's a really tough problem because um, a lot of folks, myself included, think about how to make our cities better. Think about bike lanes is a really important part of that. But we also know from, from a lot of uh, kind of emerging research that these things are viewed as, as kind of, uh, symbols of gentrification uh, and possibly even contributing causes to gentrification. And so um, that's kind of the, the connection I make with of just how problematic this stuff that seems so great um, can be uh, if we're not sort of critical uh, of the, the sorts of spaces that, that are resulting and who they're for and who they're not for. Um, because a... Uh, you know, something that looks like a place where you have to buy a cappuccino to hang out there isn't necessarily a, a truly public space, even if there's a sign saying that it is. So you've addressed all these flaws, this this tie to inequality and these issues of uh, inclusion and exclusion. But there is this this real positive spirit behind these practices. They, they give you like a warm, fuzzy feeling um, when you read some of these stories and, and the uh, – the desires and motives of some people to improve their their community and they have very good intentions um but given these 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 flaws though right and given this this uh potential for inequality what what do you see as being the the long-term possibility and potential of diy urbanism well i think it i mean it's it's going to be it's become so trendy that that the diyness of it is is always going to be sort of tenuous, I think, you know, for, for the time being, at least. We see just instance after instance of this stuff, even some of the stuff that, that seems kind of most fringy, maybe, is a word or something like that. Like like stuff that is, like, is obviously problematic from a city perspective, like an illegal bike lane, right? Uh, you know, even a city that wants bike lanes is kind of like, yeah, we're going to get sued if you paint that bike lane right there. We can't really just have people putting bike lanes down where, you know, willy-nilly. Or, or, you know, it was pointed out to me that, like, even a DIY bench, right, which seems like a purely kind of generous thing, is is nonetheless problematic because the city doesn't know it's there, or if they do know it's there, they don't know who put it there. And at a certain point, whether it's six months or 10 years later, 
it might break down or need some maintenance, right? <laughs> like this is a big issue in cities. There's a huge amount of people whose jobs in cities are just maintaining stuff. And if there's nobody there to maintain it, then it's going to fall apart and be a mess on the sidewalk or it's going to hurt somebody, you know, whether it's a splinter or collapsing under somebody or who knows what, you know? Um, and, and, and so the, even even some of that stuff, I guess, is what I was going to say, has become really trendy and gets um, embraced to the extent that that several cities I'm aware of, you know, Los Angeles is a good example. San Francisco is a good example. These cities have basically like little uh, kind of internal policies, uh, or rather public facing policies, around how to enable more people to do exactly this kind of stuff. Um, and so the DIY sort of spirit and tactic is is continued, but through these kind of official uh, auspices. And and I think many people would say, including many of the people I, I interviewed, would say that that is kind of a hopeful future, right? The city is able to bring some of this stuff above above the ground, uh, above ground, and um, kind of legitimize it in some way or another, and actually, in fact, even give people the tools so that they can do it right. Um, the real upside to that potentially is that more people um, who might be disinterested or, or scared off of doing this kind of stuff because of the persistence of sort of inequality that, that we were talking about um, might be might feel more emboldened to make these kind of improvements themselves, which is definitely uh, a good thing, uh, reducing that sort of stigmatization and, and reducing the sort of uh, strong sort of inequality in terms of privilege to act in urban space is definitely a, a positive thing. Um, and that sort of uh, growing the size of the participatory pot is something that, that you know, scholars of, of democratic particip participation um, of all sorts are very, you know, uh, interested in and concerned about. Um, on the other hand, you know, I think we continue to see that even with these things like uh, People Street in Los Angeles, which is their sort of program, um, you know, it's still a hell of a lot easier to build your own parklet or, uh, um, or, or bicycle infrastructure or public plaza or whatever else it is that you're kind of applying to get a city permit to quote unquote DIY. Um, it's still a hell of a lot easier to do that if you're coming from a community of, of privilege and a, you know, a community of, with, with greater of capital of all sorts. Um, and, you know, we continue to see that with, with the sort of, uh, embrace of things like tactical urbanism, uh, by, by certain communities. And it's not that this stuff can't work in, in all sorts of communities and especially the communities that need it most. And it does, and it is being done there. And we should look at those examples and, and celebrate them, um, whether they're tiny scale or, or huge, um, but we, you know, it's again, it's just the, it's also the case that there's some kind of considerable inequality in resources in our urban neighborhoods, um, and some places, just like just like across public schools, for instance, there's going to be a big uh, big gap in the kinds of places that are getting created and the kinds of resources that communities have. So I think one way to do it is to search for this sort of legitimacy um, and ways that we can think about who's a legitimate actor in a neighborhood and who's not and find ways to give those people the the resources they need to do it while being skeptical i guess or while being kind of careful that we're not just creating spaces the uh, spaces of privilege uh 
as it were. And I do, you know, I point out in the book several examples of places that just really um, seem to stand out as as kind of uh, they may be controversial because like all of these things, they're sort of unauthorized in some way and there may be some who, who would prefer that they not be there and that's the case with almost any alteration to the urban environment. But at least they help us kind of think about um, what sorts of spaces communities really need um, versus what sorts of spaces maybe get built by those with the greatest resources or the greatest privilege. Gordon, why don't you tell us a little about how you did the research for this book? It sounds like it was uh, adventurous. <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, uh, I started out by just kind of trying to find out about as many of these projects as possible. I'm kind of a big book, just getting out there and uh, pounding the pavement and talking to people. Um, I ultimately interviewed over 100 people uh, for this project, some of whom are, most of whom are do-it-yourselfers, and also talked to a lot of planning professionals and design professionals and uh, and some random community members and that kind of stuff as well. Um, yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time, uh, like, sitting in, in Los Angeles and coffee shops and that kind of thing, just talking to these folks when they would agree to meet me. Sometimes we would then uh, go out and kind of check out some of their stuff. I, I remember one time I I arrived in Toronto to meet with uh, uh, some of the folks from something called the Urban Repair Squad, who have been doing the uh, doing sort of unauthorized bicycle infrastructure in Toronto for. And you know the guy guy met me at the at the subway station, put me on a um, bike share bike, and uh, promptly took me off on a on a big adventure uh, around town that actually ended up costing me <laughs> costing me a lot of bike share money because <laughs> there weren't enough docks out where we went. You know, and just you know, showing me all of their things by bike, which is like exactly how you want to see somebody's DIY bike infrastructure. Right. Um, so I did that kind of stuff, um, and and frankly, I even I have to say, you know, it sounds unlikely, but I really did discover or you know come across instances of this sort of DIY urbanism, um, thanks to doing that kind of research, just spending a lot of time out on a bike, biking around neighborhood parts of New Orleans. You know, are just chock full of fascinating bits of, of DIY uh, improvements um, that, that I, that I came across while just by getting, getting to know that city on bike um, and, and say, you know, same for, for other cities too. And I think that some of that goes back to that kind of first point you made about uh, once you start thinking about this and um, that's definitely the case, you know, I would be walking to one interview and, see something else, you know, <laughs> and have to take a bunch of photos of it and, and, uh, and take my notes and see if there was anybody hanging around I could talk to about it or something like that. Yeah. Cool. So do, do you have any writing habits? Um, <laughs> I would, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I have generally speaking tend to be a sort of slow plotting writer. I, I spend a lot of time on a bike and behind a key. Um, neither of which are good times to write. Actually, incredibly generative times for me. Um, I will often set out for a coffee shop um, by bike just for to give myself kind of you know to get myself out of. I, I'm sure many 
academics have the same sort of schedule, right? You don't have an office, or at least I don't, and we have flexible enough schedules, but I tend to not work as well at home, and so I'll just head out, and I don't like to kind of go to the same places all the time. I feel like it's a wasted opportunity to explore, especially having moved uh, back to California just a year ago. I'm still getting to know my new city of Oakland, and, and so I'll, I'll just get on a bike and go someplace that's far, uh, and then I'll get there, and I'll sit down, and, and Sure enough, you know, in the however long it takes, thoughts, um, some directly related to what I'm working on, some sort of just generative of new ideas, and that tends to be really productive for me to, to do something like that. Same thing with photography, and then to sit down and write. Um, and I do a lot of I write in a very haphazard note kind of scrabble notes on all sorts of different places kind of way, and then. Uh, writing um, in in as long a chunks as I can get. And I, I will say, I, I don't maintain a very good habit when I'm in this sort of crunch time. And that's when I have to just kind of sit myself down and do a hell of a lot of writing first thing in the morning and late at night and everywhere in between. <laughs> so, a process for me with a big, um, uh, difficult finish, usually. <laughs> Well, Gordon, we've taken up a lot of your time already, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit before we go about what you've been working on lately. You mentioned a little bit about building from some of this book, and uh, what, what directions are you taking it in? Yeah, you know, I, I – well, the book just came out. I don't have, a, I don't have too many great ex- – but I, I have been spending a lot more time looking at the sort of um, – the more formal aspects of this stuff and how we – creative placemaking or tactical urbanism or whatever you want to call it, this kind of bottom-up urbanism, how we can do that in ways that are more sensitive to local communities and uh, representative of local communities. Um, and I've been doing that in different um, I've I've been writing about it. I, I just gave a talk recently about um, kind of placemaking versus place-taking and how these spaces can be really kind of positive rather than potentially exclusionary. Um, and, you know, I've also been doing it through, through my teaching. I, I taught an urban design studio course that just finished uh, this semester on um, looking at sort of applying tactical urbanism techniques to a uh, sort of central San Jose neighborhood, but not the sort of downtown neighborhood that has been getting a lot of that sort of creative placemaking attention where, you know, <laughs> I'm a qual design class. So I had uh, I had my students, uh, these are graduate, graduate urban planning students, just out there talking to the community, going to community meetings, hanging out at the laundromat, talking to people about what, what their biggest concerns are for improving their community. Um, super cool. You know, they were the kind of things that I, uh, I wish I had the skills to design. These students are wonderful. They were building models and, you know, <laughs> rendering their new improved streetscapes. And, and we had the community in there on the jury, you know, trying to figure out what sort of stuff we should actually build. Um, so th- that's where a lot of my head has been at. Um, and then the other thing, you know, when I'm thinking about I bike places or take photos or whatever and begin writing and taking notes on a new project, I'm just really – this is kind of more of a bummer, but I'm really struck, you know, living here in the Bay Area now – 
by the just kind of extreme inequality, which we all kind of know and talk about out here, but how much of it is just so spatial and physical and architectural um, from from the sort of extremes of of the of you know the Silicon Valley uh, tech campuses and and the kind of extreme extremely sort of increasingly uh, isolated kind of citadel nature of, of, of wealthy San Francisco. And then this just um, not just poverty and exclusion and people being displaced, all of which are, you know, extreme and terrible, but the, the degree of sort of, well, homelessness, um, you know, is the most kind of obvious visceral sort of thing that, that I think people, even people who have grown up out, out here, People sleeping, uh, it has it has hit a sort of new extreme. So I don't know where that's going, but that's kind of where my head is at in terms of these kind of architects that are at work in in the sort of extreme inequality of of this uh, of this otherwise like quite moderated sort of mellow, beautiful place <laughs> where where that's also quite progressive and concerned about it, and yet kind of doing nothing about it. So I don't know. That's kind of where my head is at in terms of what what else I might have to say. Well, Gordon, congratulations. Uh, great piece of work. Uh, great book. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, chatting with us today. Really my pleasure. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Rich. All right. Bye.